So today uh, we're calling an audible. Uh, it's Joe Johnson is not going to be bringing a word. It's going to be Kurt Presley. And so therefore the scripture reading has changed. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, and then Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. And so 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And then Matthew 7, 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So uh, Joe Johnson's daughter yesterday came down with a high fever and his wife is on a retreat so he couldn't figure out a way to move around. So, um, so here we are. Um, um, I want to say as I get ready to preach this sermon that I'm very, uh, as most of you who um, are long timers here, you'll know that um, one of the preachers in the past that has ministered most to me is a, is, was a Welsh preacher uh, who preached in London for years named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I am particularly indebted to Dr. Lloyd-Jones with regard to this uh, sermon. And if you'd like to actually hear more about this uh, and you want to hear about it in a Welsh accent, uh, I encourage you to look him up uh, online. Um, so... Um, let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we uh, thank you for the, um, just the efficacy, the power of your word. We thank you that every bit of it is God-breathed. We thank you that uh, all of it is used to build a kingdom, build a church, that there's no wasted scripture, that the scriptures that warn us are just as important as the scriptures that give us assurance. And so we pray that this morning you would anoint uh, both the preaching and the hearing of this, uh, your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so most of us who are over 60, at least most of us men uh, who are over 60, are accustomed to our regular physical examinations uh, at our doctor's office. Uh, women typically start much earlier than we uh, do, so uh, take care that you don't complain to your wife about having to go get a physical, because she will tell you, well, you want to know what I've been doing for the last uh, 20 years? And, um, uh, and so the reason we do that is we do it to be proactive about our physical health. We go and we get our, they weigh us, uh, they take our blood pressure, uh, they check our, they take several vials of blood and they check our uh, blood sugar, they check our cholesterol and, and many other things. Uh, and most of us over 60 men, um, most of us do that yearly, and let me just say that if you're over 60 and you don't do that yearly, let me, let me hear, um, help your wife and say, you need to do that. It's just, you know, uh, trust the Lord and, and wear your seatbelt is uh, sort of the way to think about it. But, but there's another kind of examination which is infinitely more important uh, that can be less than regular for professing uh, Christians, and that's the, 
That's the self-examination that's called for indirectly in all of Scripture. At some level, every sermon, every time in God's Word should be a time where it's searching us and stirring up our thought processes and looking at ourselves in the light of what it says and these sorts of things and thinking about God and with the way it talks about Him there. And so it's called for indirectly in all of Scripture, but it's called for directly in our verses for today. So to begin with, let's ask why should professing Christians live lives of self-examination? And there are at least three reasons that we should live lives of self-examination. The first one is, is because God says so. I mean, it says right here in the scripture, it says, examine yourselves. Uh, so at some level, I suppose that should be enough. But the second reason we should live lives of self-examination is because of the danger and even the normalcy of self-deception. It is almost certain that in every church on any given Sunday morning, there are people who believe that they're Christians, but they're not. Matthew chapter 7, many, not some, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Many on the last day will mistakenly believe that they are Christians when they're not. And so self-examination can reveal these false professions of faith, and actually self-examination can be a part of our conversion story. Many, many times people will come and give their testimony and say, you know, I thought I was a Christian my whole life. I mean, I grew up in a church. I went to church all the time. I, mean, I grew up in a Christian home, and all of a sudden, you know, I, I got to talking to somebody, and I got to looking at stuff in my life and the Scripture, and I started thinking, I don't think I'm a Christian at all. And I was actually converted. We've had stories. There's a story of a girl who came here to Christ Press years ago and went through the inquirers class and was going to join the church. And so in order to join the church, you have to meet with elders and give your testimony and that sort of thing. So she met with the elders. She gave her testimony. And in the process of giving her testimony, both she and the elders realized, I don't think this, I don't think this young girl understands the gospel. And she realized that. And she realized, I don't think I'm a Christian. And so there was a, a lot more conversation. And then there was prayer. And she received Christ. She prayed to receive Christ right there in the meeting where she was just coming to join the church. And she is walking with Christ to this day. Um, so um, that's the second reason. It's because of the danger or the normalcy of self-deception. The third reason that we live self-examined lives is because self-examination can reveal to us that we are Christians. There are many genuine Christians who lack joy because they doubt their salvation for various reasons. Uh, maybe the sinful flesh is just dogging them. Maybe Satan is throwing some fiery uh, darts at them. Maybe there are some besetting sins that they have the hardest time getting rid of, but they hate them. Maybe they worry so much that they think, how can I be a Christian because I worry so much? Maybe they have lack of gospel clarity. Maybe they don't really understand what the gospel is says. And so for some, self-examination in the light of the gospel can bring assurance and joy to people who doubt their faith. Uh, this is a letter written to a church, 2 Corinthians. It's written to a church full of people, many of whom are Christians, and the word to them is, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. This is not a word to the unbelieving world. This is a world this is a word to the world of professing Christians. So, so that's some of the whys, and I'm sure you can think of some other whys. But what about the how? Uh, 
How are professing Christians to examine themselves? Well, the first thing is to remember that we are to examine ourselves, not our doctrine. Now, certainly, uh, certainly doctrine is important. I mean, our denomination makes a big deal out of doctrine. And we want to make sure that our doctrine is biblical. But someone, but someone can hold to right doctrine and be unconverted. You can memorize the catechism and be an unbeliever, be a stranger to grace. Uh, there are many, many people who are comfortable talking about doctrine, but they're not comfortable talking about the state of their soul. You know, Corinth, Corinth was a five-star church. I mean, Corinth had it all. And, and they had all these problems. And the question we said, why, why in the world, how could a five-star church have all these problems? And Paul basically says this, well, maybe it's because some of you aren't converted. It's one of the biggest problems in churches. It's one of the biggest problems in families today. One of the biggest problems in churches is you get people in the church who aren't converted. Maybe you get them on the session or you get them on the diaconate. Or maybe you get them in the pulpit. They know the doctrine. They can talk to you about theology all day long. But they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question really becomes this. What does my life look like when it's placed side by side with the Sermon on the Mount? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in my life? Why do I live the way that I live? These are the kinds of questions that we have to ask ourselves in the process of self-examination. But now somewhere in here, somebody's going to be saying, now, preacher, aren't we justified by faith, not works? Are you, you preaching some work salvation or what? And the answer is this. The gospel says, certainly, if you're a Christian, you're justified by faith, not by works. But justification is not everything about salvation. Justification is not the whole story of the Christian life. Everyone who is justified by faith is born again. And everyone who is born again partakes of the divine nature. And everyone who partakes of the divine nature will bear some resemblance to the family of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If I am in Christ, I'm going to bear the family likeness at some level. Let me just say this. It's unbiblical and it is dangerous. It's unbiblical and it is dangerous for us to look solely to justification by faith and say, well, that's it. There's nothing left for me to consider. Because here's the truth, that true justification inevitably leads to sanctification and inevitably leads to spiritual fruit. The truth is this, whether you're in the spiritual realm or the physical realm, people who are alive show signs of life. If you're physically alive, you show signs of life. You know, that's why when somebody is, they don't know if they're alive or dead, they put their fingers on their carotid artery or they check their pulse or they try to figure out if they're still breathing. Do they have any signs of life? Well, the same thing is true in the spiritual realm. It's not simply my claim to be born again that's important. Is there evidence to support that claim? 
So what do we look for? What are we looking for in this lifelong process of self-examination? What are some ways that I can tell that I am a Christian? Well, first let's do this. First, let's consider the life of the person who is not a Christian. What do we know about this person and his life? Well, generally we can say this, that he walks according to the flesh because his mind is set on the things of the flesh, Romans chapter eight. He is preoccupied with the world. He's preoccupied with the things of the world. He's preoccupied with food and drink and clothes and power and wealth and prestige and social status and worldly success and worldly entertainments. His life does not exhibit the characteristics of a redeemed man that we see in the Beatitudes. We see no poverty of spirit. We see no mourning over sin. We see no meekness. There's no hunger and thirst for righteousness, no purity in heart, no mercy, no peacemaking, no love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. He's not interested in the Bible. In fact, he doesn't like the Word of God. He thinks it's barbaric. He thinks it's narrow. He thinks it's strange. It's boring. It's dated. It's not relevant. And those who cherish it are crazy. In fact, if his God, his God, if he had one, wouldn't be like the God of the Bible. And he has no interest in church. And so according to the Bible, this person clearly is not a Christian. Well, what about the person who is not so obviously not a Christian? What about the person who's not so obviously not a Christian, but who thinks he is? This is the person referenced in Matthew chapter 7. What is true of this person? Well, the first thing about him is he professes to believe the right things, and he understands some theology. In Matthew 7, he said, Lord, Lord. And yet the truth is, is that for him, religion is all about the outside. It's not about the inside. At times he can be enthusiastic about religion. He can be enthusiastic about Christianity. He can engage with you in all kinds of Bible studies and all kinds of religious conversations and activities. He can go toe to toe with you on the doctrines of grace. He can explain them to you very, very well. And he may even do a lot of stuff in the church. Matthew 7, didn't we do this? And didn't we do that? And didn't we do that? These were worker bees that were talking to Jesus here. He may even be the, he may even be a preacher. But again, his religion is all external. It's not internal. He likes to control his religion. He doesn't want to be controlled by it. He faithfully attends worship, but he really doesn't like it. He almost never sings the songs. Almost never. He's fine with religion and church when it does not interfere with other things that he wants to do. His assurance of being right with God is grounded in how good he thinks he is at any given time. It reminds me a little bit of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. He has a form of godliness, but he denies its power. His life is an outward display of faith, but it's all show. There's no power in his profession of faith, no changed life. He speaks of God, but God is absent from his daily life. God is absent from his marriage and his family and his business dealings. There's no salt and there's no light. In fact, the truth is he gets irritated by gospel truth. When scripture begins to search him or challenge his life and decisions, he dislikes it and he gets angry. 
Why? Because the word of God is messing up his plans. He feels condemned by the word and he becomes unhappy and he's mad at the preacher. He begins to squirm in his seat. Why? Because the gospel is invading his controlled, planned out life. It's piercing his defenses and it's getting into his business. And he doesn't like it. And his resentment tells the tale of his heart. The Pharisees did not like Jesus because they didn't, like, they didn't dislike him because he was mean. They disliked him because he told them that they were building castles in the sand with their very lives. He exposed them. He challenged them in their sin and they didn't like it. And it's still true today in the life of an unredeemed churchgoer. So that's what we expect to see in the life of the obvious and the not so obvious non-Christian. But what do we expect to see in the life of the genuine Christian? The twice born man, the new creation in Christ, the person who really is in Christ Jesus. Well, at some level we expect to see in the life of the true Christian the exact opposite of what we see in the life of the non-Christian. We expect to see completely different attitudes toward the Word of God and toward the world. We expect to see a life that's marked at some measure by poverty of spirit, by mourning over sin, by meekness, by hunger and thirst for righteousness, by mercifulness, by purity in heart, um, by peacemaking. We expect to see these things. We expect to see at some level the fruit of the spirit, not perfect, but in some ways love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in some measure. We expect to see a religion that's on the inside. John chapter 7, whoever believes in me, Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We expect in a believer to see a Holy Spirit-filled life of repentance and faith ongoing repentance as we blow it. Parents, as we blow it with our children, one of the things they see in us is, I tell you what, my dad blew it a lot. But I tell you, I really got to see repentance. He was a repentant man. He was a man who understood that he was a sinner and that he didn't need a savior. My dad showed me I needed a savior by showing me that he needed a savior. We expect to see someone who can think of nothing more blessed than to know that Christ, the divine life of Christ is in him. Someone who is not who he was. Someone who every year is not who he was. Someone whose opinions and desires and affections have changed and they're changing. Someone who has new feelings and attitudes. Someone in whom there's obvious, visible spiritual growth Someone who loves the Word of God, who delights in the Word of God, Psalm 1. Someone who delights in prayer. Someone who knows the love of God in Christ, who wants to live for Jesus. Someone who says, I can't think of anything I'd rather do than please the Lord. Wants to live for Him and to enjoy Him. I want to enjoy the Lord Jesus. Someone who doesn't love the world or the things in the world. Someone who's not captured by any of the competing ideologies of the world. Someone who cares about his spiritual condition. Someone who agrees with Scripture that he's a sinner and thus he welcomes the searchlight of God's Word and the accountability of the brethren. 
Somebody comes up and gets about two buttons down on you and says, hey, I think I see something you may not see. And I want to call you to repent. Someone who has a desire for holiness that he doesn't recall having before his conversion. Someone who loves everyone. Black, white, any nationality, any ethnic group, any religious background. Someone who loves Hindus and Muslims and Christians and atheists and agnostics. Someone who loves everybody. And in a particular way, who loves his brothers and sisters in Christ. We expect to see in a true Christian someone troubled by his unbelief. Someone troubled by his backsliding. It's not something just to blow off. You know, the unbeliever, unbelievers are perfectly satisfied where they are. They're not concerned with any progress in the faith. The Christian, however, he sees the possibilities in the gospel. He sees what's there. And he yearns. He yearns for more of Christ within. He wants to know more gospel truth. He loves the truth. He longs for the transformative power of the truth. He wants to grow in grace. He wants to have the Spirit of God witnessing to his spirit that he's a child of God. He reads the Psalms and he longs to have in his own life the kind of praise that he reads in the Psalms. His greatest delight and source of happiness is Christ. And above everything else, even as he feels his utter hopelessness and helplessness apart from Christ, he knows in the midst of it all that Christ is more than sufficient for all of his needs. And he feels late in his Christian life, as unworthy of this great salvation as he did at the beginning, and probably likely even more. In some, he believes the gospel. He believes that Jesus came to save not the righteous, but sinners. He believes that he, sinful as he is, is covered and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, his advocate. And thus, he wants more than anything he can know to live a life well-pleasing to Christ and to tell others of the wonders of his grace. So let's close. Do you have this life in Christ? Is this life in you? If it is, praise God for it. And if it's not, run to Christ and ask him to search you. Ask him to reveal himself to you by his Holy Spirit in the gospel. Ask him to do that until you see your sinfulness and cast yourself entirely upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And there you will find full forgiveness, new life, and everything you have ever needed and everything you have ever wanted. Beyond your wildest imaginings, things the world cannot understand and things the world cannot give us are all found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And keep going to him again and again and again until you can say with the Apostle Paul this, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God, which, in Christ, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'll end like I've been ending with the words of John Bunyan. My righteousness is in heaven, standing at God's right hand. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all of it. We thank you for all of your word. We thank you for all of your work. Use it for the glory of your name. For we pray it in your name. Amen.